from very early on, I had the, the perhaps misguided view that uh, being born in a middle-class household in the West was kind of a huge uh, luck, stroke of luck for me, and that, that gave me a responsibility to do something useful with my life uh, for people who didn't have that luck. You are listening to Nobel Prize Conversations, and this is the French economist Esther Duflour, who in 2019 was the second woman to have ever been awarded the Sveriges Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel. Her work and research is centered around questions of poverty and microeconomic issues in developing countries. And Esther Duflour says that the question of why some people live in great wealth and others in poverty has been something she has been tackling since her childhood. However, her view of poverty has also changed. You know, I had this idea as a kid that if you were really poor, your life was very, very limited. And what I've learned in working with the poor is that that's untrue. However difficult people's life circumstances are, they have something that they want to, to achieve. The circumstances, what they do is that they put some break on whether or not they'll be able to meet those aspirations, and what I've learned in my work, that there are things you can do to remove those obstacles, and that therefore one should. Esther Duflour shared the prize in economic sciences with her husband, Abhijit Banerjee, and Michael Kramer. They are all involved in the Abdul Latif Poverty Action Lab, whose mission is to reduce poverty by ensuring that policy is informed by scientific evidence. Esther Duflo is also, together with her husband, the author of several books, the latest being Good Economics for Hard Times. A book that shows how economics, done right, can help us solve problems like inequality, extreme poverty and slowing growth. Esther Duflo believes that there are things to be done, and with years of research, she is showing the world how. I am Fanny Harjestam, one of the producers of the show. The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the chief scientific officer of Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. This podcast series is brought to you with the support of Riksbanken, Sweden's central bank. This episode is recorded during the corona crisis, a time where many people suddenly woke up to the fragility of the global economy and indeed our own lives and the worry of how the future will play out might be bigger than ever. Let me start with worry. Everybody's so worried at the moment. It's such turbulent times. There's the epidemic, and now all the demonstrations around discrimination. What worries you most about the consequences of all this? So I would say there are two. (laughs) One is how the pandemic will evolve in developing countries in the South, so at the beginning of the pandemic, there were not that many cases. So um, that seemed to be manageable within the existing health systems. Uh, but now you start seeing some big increase in cases in, com- in middle-income countries and in poor countries. And one big worry is that that becomes like huge. <laughs> um, another worry I have is now what's going to happen to the politics of the rich countries. I think before the pandemic, there was a lot of toying in many Western democracy about the legitimacy of government and whether we really need government anyways and whether government is the problem rather than the solution. 
And I think what become very clear in this pandemic is you do need governments because there are things that cannot be done by anybody else, which could be a good thing because I do think we need governments for many things. And if people realize that that's the case, then if governments regain some legitimacy, then they might use some of this legitimacy to do other things, such as um, you know social policies, climate change. On the other hand, if they are seen as being not effective at managing this crisis, then there could be further erosion of anything looking like a social compact. And uh, countries that were on the brink of complete explosions could go full, full speed there. That's another worry is what's going to happen to the politics. Is there also a danger that with all the talk about a kind of new normal and the chance to reinvent yourselves, people are very, have become yet more focused on their own lives and their own societies and that the, the South will in a way be more forgotten than it is now as a result of all this, do you think? There is certainly a temptation to fall back onto uh, the local. You know, people talk about stopping trade and it's certainly not a very good time to to try and raise money for for developing countries and for solidarity, even though that's a time where we particularly need it. So that's also a concern. And, and how much does the current situation interfere in your own work? Uh, so it's a pretty massive uh, shock. <laughs> uh, we cannot uh, see anybody in person, uh, but we were able to adjust rather rapidly. Uh, so I think in the short run, we were able to pivot quite quickly. In the medium run, I think it makes us, unfortunately, even more needed because there is a lot of things that we don't know on how to inform people, how to protect people in the face of this huge economic crisis, how to deal with entirely new problems such that returns of migrants. And that means that I think many of the projects that we were kind of in, engaged with have to stop or to be modified but a lot of new things are coming online and we need to learn both how to work safely and effectively and rapidly we've learned to be nimble and flexible so we'll use that so um, i'm more concerned about the population we work with than about our work. I suppose one could look at it as new as new experimental conditions, but the populations you work with are being put under extraordinary stress at the moment, worse than ever. Fortunately, there were a lot of things we we knew we thanks to past work about what should be done quickly. For example, you know, thanks to all of the work in behavioral economics and the, the the experiments they've done within, we have some ideas of how to promote some good behavior on how social network can be harnessed to make sure that the information circulates. And we were able to immediately put that to use. So for example, Abhijit Banerjee, who since the Nobel Prize really considered to be a, like a, a saint or something, like hugely influential. He recorded some messages that, in short videos that we sent to 25 million people. Uh, we had some control location and the treatment location where I did it. And what we found is a um, huge impact on symptom reporting. So about a doubling 
uh, more than a doubling actually in the frequency at which the local health worker reports that someone reported symptom into them uh, in places where the videos were sent. Uh, also an increase in about a third in uh, hand washing and a decrease in traveling outside the village, even though it was a lockdown so that people were not supposed to do it, but they did it anyway. And there was a decrease where people got the video. I think that might be you know, one of the ways in which the Nobel Prize has saved lives. That, that really is a result. Of, I mean, of course I was going to ask you um, how six months on or so the prize has affected your work and your life. And obviously in some ways it must be a distraction, but that's a very direct result where it's had a positive effect. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, it has been a distraction because there's so much uh, demand, etc. But I must say that we always kind of were intending to use the the platform that this gives us for the world. I suppose we didn't intend that it would be so quick that it would become necessary. So I think that's the starkest example, the one I just gave you, and um, kind of the legitimacy of the Nobel Prize. To, allowed this to very quickly contact like many doctors and have them record videos and uh and we've been involved in in advising from various governments and there you know the legitimacy that this gives us has been immediately useful The idea of giving small amounts of money to vast numbers of people fills some people with worry. They think that this is unaffordable, but you, you argue that it's absolutely affordable and the right thing to do. Yes, no, in the best of time, it's affordable. So what we advocated in Good Economic for Half Time is what we call universal ultra-basic income for developing countries. And what an ultra-basic income is, is something quite small, which really is the difference between starvation and survival. So for the rich countries, it might not be sufficient because it doesn't put you in a footing to live like a dignified existence in a rich country. But for the poor countries, this, this like basic worry of not making it and not being able to put food on the table is very important and has a lot of implications for their willingness to take some risks because if they think that the, in the bad outcome, they starve, then they won't take the risk. It has a lot of impact on their, their ability to mentally focus on everything they have to do in, in life because there are only so many things you can afford to worry about. And if food on the table is there, then kind of everything else recedes to the background. So if you can give people this assurance that no matter how bad things are going to be, they'll be fine at that fundamental level, you have a lot of kind of positive things that get unlocked as a result of that. I was very struck by a phrase you used just now. You said the ability to live a dignified life. Um, that's an important concept which sel seldom gets talked about, I suppose, when you're thinking about raising people's level of uh, standard of living. You think about whether they have food, whether they have clothes, whether they have somewhere to sleep, whether they have a job. But people don't often talk about dignity, but it's very important, I suppose. Yeah, so that's something which we really uh, uh, insisted on in Good Economics for Hard Times, which is, you know, putting dignity at the center of social, social protection. So unfortunately, social protection systems worldwide have uh, 
uh, suffer from a Victorian overhang. Basically, in a lot of cases, the, the main principle behind the design of the systems is to make sure that people who don't deserve it don't access it, and also to make sure that as you access it, it doesn't make you complacent and therefore prevents you from the incentives to, you know, to, to do the right thing and pull yourself by your um, bootstraps. So in the Victorian era, the, the whole protection system in the, in the UK was very, very, very punitive. And this has evolved, but not very radically uh, in the sense that, you know, unemployed workers, for example, still need to check in many times with their counselors to make sure that it's unpleasant enough that people just don't relax into being unemployed and all that. And the, the same is true in developing countries. And the result is that you have a system which is baroque, which has a lot of rules to be accessed. And that has two consequences. One is that it doesn't really reach its um, objectives of helping people because a lot of people don't even manage to get <laughs> help that would be entitled to. And the second is that it makes uh, uh, people very terrified that they one day might need to use the system, which in the Western countries, I think, make people extremely anxious about any social changes. It's true. I suppose so much of the kind of dislike of the other, at least in the in the in the north, in the richer countries, is based around the idea that people are going to come and get something for free. They're going to come and abuse our health service or they're going to come and make use of our social services. And it's it's a very it's a very narrow view of the world. It's a very unpleasant view of the world, but it's it's a very real view. That, that is people's fear. And that brings us on to an, a, another theme which is which is the question of migration and movement of populations, something that um, causes a tremendous worry in the in the in the richer countries, but really perhaps isn't to be worried about nearly as much as people do. So people have these very simplistic economic models that you know if there there is a kind of a fixed pie of jobs. So if more people come, there will be fewer jobs, or they will pay less. But in reality. As migrants come, again, they, they consume, so they also generate demands and therefore jobs. And also they tend to take jobs that other people don't take and that have complementarities with what other people do. So if uh, nobody wants to be the person who cleans the, uh, the floor of the meatpacking plant uh, during a coronavirus crisis, but if no one does it, then you cannot have the meatpacking plant operating. So the persons who can run it from home don't have a job either. And so those complementarities are also essential and they create jobs for the native workers. And then there are the more um, sort of identity fears. Uh, and what is striking is that, for example, in the US, the most anti-migration sentiment are in part where people where there is very little migration. So it's not got much to do with the economic uh, costs because there are no migrants, so they, are, they don't suffer the economic costs. It's more fear of something that is different, something you don't know. Uh, if you have not been exposed to, to migrants, you might have all sorts of view about what is their culture and how it clashes with yours. And um, I think one reason on why it has become much worse in the last few decades is because people's sense of how the world works or how society works clashes with their own experience. 
and then they have to find like a, a, a scapegoat to explain it. So for example, in the US, people are pretty convinced that uh, social mobility is very high, that kids change their lives are not really dependent on what on their parents' uh, situation. But that's untrue. So in fact, the social mobility in the US is now lower than what it, what it is in Europe. So if people have the feeling that the US society and the capitalism, the market economy, etc., makes for a very flexible society where their kids have a lot of uh, chances and they see that their kids are not doing well, then either they are losers in a society of winners or something has come and has spoiled things for them. Hence the, the desire to look for an enemy where... You know, the enemy could be you and I, in, you know, intellectuals from the coast. It could be China. And that works well because there is that need for an enemy. Esther Deflor says that she thinks it's important that she as an economist takes time and effort to try to explain to people how economic patterns and systems actually work. It's easy to take the role as an oracle who just says that this is how it is without any reasoning but you have to try and really explain why and where problems occur and how we can try to solve them. This is also the way to open people's minds, for example, a crisis. But it is not always easy as an economist to change people's minds. So trust in, trust in scientists, trust in economists. Trust in economists isn't terribly great at the moment. Trust in economists is uh, terribly low. <laughs> Around the time uh, of, uh, of the Brexit polls, a little bit after that, the, the economists were the least trusted people after the politicians. Only 25% of people trusted them. Weather forecasters were trusted twice as much. And nurses and doctors were, were at the top with like 85% or 90% trusting them. I don't know that there has been a, a post-COVID uh, uh, polls, but I, I doubt that this would have changed radically. Maybe the good economics you talk about in the book is economics in which people will have trust. That's the hope. I mean, in part, people don't trust economists because they have a perception that economists' job is to do prediction. And uh, uh, because that's what mostly they hear economists on television making some prediction about what growth it's going to be in the future. And usually those predictions are wrong. So then they tend to think that all economists, that's what they do, and they do do it very badly. But in reality, that's not all economists do, and uh, and they do do it very badly. That is true. Economists are terrible at prediction, but most economists do not do predictions. I should ask a little bit about you. Um, what was it that drove you, I suppose, to devote your life to, if you like, the study of the causes of poverty and how to relieve it? From very early on, I was bothered about the fact that there were poor people in the world. My mom spent time in developing countries as a kind of a French doctor. I had the perhaps misguided view that being born in middle-class households in the West was kind of a huge luck, stroke of luck for me, and that I needed to repay that. That gave me a responsibility to do something useful with my life for people who didn't have that luck. Let me just stop you at that exact thought, because that's interesting, perhaps misguided. I suppose many people do feel that, that they feel that they've been born into extraordinary kind of lucky circumstances. But 
you've worked a great deal with people who have been born in very different circumstances. When you say misguided, do you think that actually it isn't that different to be born in different places or it isn't that lucky to be born in the richer countries? No, when I said misguided, I meant maybe a bit grandiose, you know, this idea that you can kind of go and like rescue people from wherever they are. And the second thing where it was misguided, and that took me a long time to to realize that is, is not that the lives are not very, very different uh, if you're born in different circumstances. But I had a, the vision of the poor world that was very much inspired by, if you want, Mozart, Teresa, and Albert Schweitzer, like people who need to get helped and rescued because there is nothing they can do, something like that. Whereas, in fact, what I've learned in my in my work is that you know people who are even in extreme poverty have sophisticated lives and uh, um, lots of things they want to do and lots of ambition and lots of possibilities, which doesn't take away from the fact that we can make the circumstances better to make sure that these possibilities are realized. But, you know, I had this idea as a kid that if you were really poor, your life was very, very limited, constructed. Your entire uh, waking hours were uh, devoted to meeting your very most basic needs and that there was nothing else. And what I've learned in working with the poor is that that's untrue, uh, even in the most extreme of circumstances. However difficult people's life circumstances are, they, you know, they have like something that they want to, to achieve. The circumstances, what they do is that they put some break on whether or not they'll be able to meet those aspirations. And you know, what I've learned in my work, that there are things you can do to remove those obstacles. And that, therefore, one should. Another thing that I've learned over the years is that I had this misguided part of my thoughts was, you know, informed from being born and, you know, raised in France and all that. So I saw it from the French like perspective. And that's what a lot of people in the West think. They are worried about aid and, you know, is aid going to be effective or not effective? And what I've learned is that aid is such an unimportant part of things. That what matters is even just quantitatively, most of the money that is being spent on the poor is being spent out of the budget of the developing countries themselves. So the issue is not aid, and it's certainly not how we organize our charity to the poor world and whether there should be some more. It's the issue is how to make sure that the, the local resources that exist that are being spent in the most effective way possible. In the same way that that's a problem for us in rich countries as well. Ensuring that those that, that expenditure is done in the best way is uh, I suppose the, the the main body of, of your work, of the, the, these experiments that test different ways of, of, of intervening, of spending money. It requires an enormous amount of managerial skill to put together tests like that. And that's obviously something you have. So aside from economist's brain and a historian's brain, um, you have a managerial brain. Apparently, I discovered it <laughs> as, we, as we went along. Uh, I think I have two skills, maybe three, on the managerial front. One is to hire good people. The other is to have a pretty clear vision of what they should be doing. What is the mission? What is not the mission? And how we get there. And the third one is to stay out of their way. 
and and that doesn't require for me to be that good at management. Okay, no, it requires you to be good though at um, sharing and sharing credit and and I suppose um, often academia can have a kind of aggressive competitive side to it. The most interesting things about credit that I've discovered and keep rediscovering and wish people understood is the more you share credit, the more credit comes back to you. So I really always try to make an effort to share credit, but I'm always credited with things that someone else has done. <laughs> so it requires to be a bit aggressive in giving back the credit. And then uh, um, if you want to build a movement, make sure that always put other people in front when it's possible. Honestly, even from a purely self-interesting perspective, that's the right strategy, but I think most academics don't necessarily realize it. I suppose that also leads on to your relationship with your husband, because, I mean, again, sometimes the, the combination of two very talented people can be greater than the sum of its parts. But it's hard to realize that initially, perhaps, as, you're, as, you, as the academic furrow your sort of ploughing looks like a solo path not for our type of work is very much a team teamwork anyways so that for our type of work that's much easier where people are have different roles and different strengths and so in the wider world like we couldn't do any of our individual projects without team member of different roles um and in our own work together um, we, are, we are perhaps closer in terms of our strengths and what we like to do than, than, than other people in different teams. But we also have talents or whatever, so, to, so we can complement each other well. Is it easy to say, I should, ask, I should have you both in front of me when asking this question, but is it easy to say in which way your skills are complementary? I think uh, Abhijit has truly the, the, the vision He's really the one of the three of us, of Michael, me, and Abhijit. He's the one who really saw, uh, from, from the get-go, he really saw like, how this idea of focusing on randomized controlled trial was going to, had the potential to change not only our corner of economics, but a lot of economics and a lot of the world. So that's the first point. Like, he is, I think he is the... the the visionary in the sense of having the whole vision. He is the one who, is, uh, who can see how the, the conceptual, how the conceptual framework works together and why we need to do this and need to do that in order to have a whole, you know, something that at the end of the day is going to not just be uh, a program evaluation telling us this is the effect of X on Y, but it's going to teach us a true lesson that is portable in the world. And then once he has provide, provided that frame, then I am more uh, attuned to the day-to-day management of many things. And uh, I have um, a, a sense of uh, where, <laughs> what are the different paths that we need to take to arrive where we need to go. I think that was fascinating to listen to, perhaps slightly unbalanced, because you're obviously quite a modest person as well. So I should have asked him as well, and then we would have had the balancing answer. Oh, I think the two things, the two things are important. I don't think we would be there where we are now without Michael Kramer taking the, the risk of even trying it out, without averaging laying out the whole plan, 
and without uh, me kind of uh, squirreling with the various uh, pieces of that plan. You're, you're lucky to have found each other. I know that people ask you about this all the time, but are you happy to be the standard bearer for, um, let's say, broadly less represented groups in economics? Obviously women, but perhaps a wider group than that. Is that a role you like? I'm, I'm happy that there is someone and I'm happy if it's me. Uh, that, that, that's fine with me. <laughs> uh, the on behalf of women in particular, I'm also happy that it's for the work we do uh, because part of the problem with economics is that it's going back to why economics has a bad rep is because people, most people, young people think economics is not addressing any problem of any interest that all economists do is uh, exchange rates and uh, uh, maybe on a good day regulation, but not worrying about social problems or the climate change or the poor and, and I think I'm happy that there is a recognition to much more micro-empirical work meant to make a difference in the lives of people and, um, and that there is a woman in that lot. I don't think I am the adequate uh, standard bearer for underrepresented minorities. And in particular, I do very much regret that there are not very many people of color in genomics. Um, and one of the things that I would like to use the Nobel Prize for is to change that. So we had the plan for this spring that was unfortunately cut short by the COVID of working with high school students in the Boston area, college-bound high school students or members of underrepresented minorities to just show them the various things that economists do that might actually be of interest so that they consider economics as a type of subject that might help them address the, the, the topic that they think are important. So I'm totally happy to take the role of standard bearer for women. I'm not a the adequate standard bearer of representative of minorities in general, because I do think the situation of women in economics is much better than the situation of minorities. They still are women. There is nobody or very, very, very few people at all stages uh, who are Hispanic or African-American or in Europe or coming from Arab countries. Or, and that, that really uh, should change. You have just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Phil Tinterland for Nobel Media. The producer of this episode was Siri von Malmborg. I'm Fanny Harjestam, music by Epidemic Sound. Make sure to visit the official website nobelprize.org for more in-depth content. Thank you for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 